Good morning. We won't take time to read because Monique has already read the story of Naaman and the servant girl to us. In his book, The Mission of God, Christopher Wright, who has spoken in this church, says this about the Bible. The Bible renders to us the story of God's mission through God's people in their engagement with God's world for the sake of the whole of God's creation. And this mission of God is a whole series of acts and events unfolding over the centuries and down through the generations. But even as it does unfold, there is a continuity and a cohesion to it. It is going somewhere. It is a plan. And the culmination of this progressive revelation comes in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is what it's all about. In Luke chapter 24, Luke describes the appearance of the risen Lord to his disciples. And he records his words to them. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And he goes on, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And to quote Christopher Wright again, through the Messiah, as his anointed agent, The God of Israel would bring about all that he intended for Israel. The mission of Israel was to be nothing less than a light to the nations. The means of bringing the redemptive blessing of God to all the nations of the world. And the Old Testament is full of stories illustrating the different stages of development of this mission of God and this mission of Israel. And one of these stories is the story of Naaman and the young servant girl in the service of his wife. And as we read these Old Testament stories in general, and as we read this story in particular, it is useful to ask ourselves three questions. One, does this story confirm what we have already learned so far about God? Two, does this story teach us anything new about God? Does it increase our knowledge of his character and his ways? And three, does this story point to something which is still to be fulfilled? at a later time. 
And so we come to our story. Now I want to suggest that there are three themes in this story. Three themes which fit into this grand narrative of God's dealings with Israel. And through Israel with the nations of the world. And the first of these themes is a theme of sovereignty. We are introduced at the outset to a man called Naaman, who we are told was commander of the army of the king of Syria. So this is a story about someone who is not an Israelite. He is not one of God's chosen people. He is a foreigner, an alien, a traditional enemy of Israel. And we should pause to consider this. And in doing so, we need to make a detour. We need to leave this story for the present, but we will return to it. So bear with me, if you will. Back in Genesis chapter 12, in the city of Ur on the banks of the Euphrates River, in modern-day Iraq, a man called Abram hears the call of God. This call is to leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. And alongside that call, God also makes Abram a promise. I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Abram responds to that call, and he eventually makes his way to the land of Canaan, where God confirms to him, to your offspring, I will give this land. In time, miraculously, a son, Isaac, is born to Abraham, as he's now known, and to his wife, Sarah, in their old age. So that part about the promise, or of the promise, about the land being given to Abraham's offspring can and will be kept. The story continues with Isaac and his son, Jacob, and the migration by the twelve sons of Jacob to Egypt, where they settle down and begin to multiply. And another part of the promise, I will make you into a great nation, begins to be fulfilled. And then after 430 years, there comes the great defining moment in the history of Israel, the exodus from Egypt. And even before that event takes place, God makes a promise to Moses in Exodus chapter 6. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will take you as my own people. And I will be your God. 
And I will bring you to the land I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. And after the escape from Pharaoh's army at the Red Sea, the celebratory song of Moses and Miriam contains this line, In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. There is a growing awareness in the consciousness of Israel that they are no longer merely the children of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. They are the people of God, the people of Yahweh. The God of Abraham is now the God of Israel. And as they move into the land of Canaan, the book of Joshua describes the implementation and the fulfillment of another part of the promise. To your offspring, I will give this land. Victory follows victory. There is success after success. The end of the book of Joshua sees the high point of this relationship between God and Israel. And in Joshua chapter 24, Joshua has assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. And starting with the call of Abraham, he reminds them of everything that God has done for them. But Joshua knows these people all too well. And he warns them, if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you. And he repeats this warning. Throw away the foreign gods that are among you. And the response of the people is, we will serve the Lord our God and obey him. Then you move into the book of Judges. And you only have to go as far as chapter 2 where the death of Joshua is recorded. And then you read these words. After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, that is Joshua's generation, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of Egypt, They followed and worshipped other gods of the peoples around them. And so while on the one hand there has been this development of an ever closer identification of Israel with God, now there is a slide into apostasy and idolatry and there is the recurring problem of Israel's unbelief and her worship of other gods. And of these other gods, the most widely worshipped was the local Canaanite deity, Baal. What then is to become of this divine plan for Israel to be a light to the surrounding nations? In time, God allows Israel to have a monarchy Initially, the kingdom is united under Saul, 
then David, and then Solomon. But after the death of Solomon, the kingdom divides into a northern kingdom, which will keep the name Israel, and a southern kingdom to be known as Judah. And with only a few exceptions, the kings of Israel and of Judah continue to lead the people astray. And of the kings of the northern kingdom, the most notorious was Ahab. When he comes to the throne in 1 Kings 16, it is said of him, Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. We know that he built a temple for Baal and set up an altar in the temple. And this queen Jezebel wasn't far behind him, hunting down and killing as many of the prophets of the Lord as she could find. Ahab is succeeded by his son Ahaziah. It is said of him, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord because he walked in the ways of his father and mother. Ahaziah had no sons and so was succeeded by his brother Joram. And this is the king who was reigning in Israel when the events of 2 Kings chapter 5 take place. It is written about Joram. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not as his father and mother had done. He got rid of the sacred stone of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam. Now, what were the sins of Jeroboam? Jeroboam was the first king of Israel after the kingdom divided. Rehoboam ruled the southern kingdom. Jeroboam was afraid that if the people continued to go to Jerusalem to worship in the temple in Rehoboam's territory, they might transfer their allegiance to Rehoboam. At least that shows there were some in Israel who remained faithful to God. So we read in 1 Kings 13 that Jeroboam made two golden calves, placing one in Bethel in the south of his kingdom and one in Dan in the north. And he said to the people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. How far have we come from the closing chapters of Joshua? And these were the sins of Jeroboam to which Joram clung, encouraging the people to worship other gods. And now we're back to our story. And by the time we come to the story of Naaman, set in the northern kingdom, in Samaria, there has been this history and this tradition of unbelief, and the worship of Baal is everywhere. 
And this story of Naaman is an early illustration that even in the face of the unbelief of his chosen people, the people who should have been a light to the nations around, God's sovereign purposes will still be fulfilled. It is in the context of Israel's unbelief that the stream of divine grace is diverted to a pagan soldier, to an enemy of Israel. And here is the beginning of something that will reach its tragic culmination in the New Testament. At the beginning of his ministry, the Lord Jesus knew he would face unbelief. And when he spoke in the synagogue in Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he used this story to make the point. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. And by the end of his ministry, that unbelief will have turned into outright rejection. And to Pilate's question, what shall I do then with Jesus who is called Christ? The answer of all the people is crucify him. And as we saw a few months ago when we studied the book of Acts, when the message of the gospel was by and large rejected by the Jews, it was then that Paul made that famous declaration in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it, and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. And the riches of God's grace are made available to the Gentiles. We have the final outworking of that last part of the promise to Abraham, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And this culminates in Paul's letter to the Galatians. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And here's the verse. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So if we have a theme of sovereignty, there is a second theme, and that is the theme of service. In this story, the role of servants is very important. Center stage is this young servant girl who served Naaman's wife. But look at the other servants in the story. Naaman himself was a servant of his king. Verse 4 of chapter 5, Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. 
when Naaman turns up outside Elisha's house, the prophet doesn't go out and speak to Naaman. He sends a messenger, a servant, to speak to him. And when Naaman is angered and affronted by Elisha's failure to speak to him personally, it is his, Naaman's servants, who prevail on him to carry out Elisha's directions. And these two themes of sovereignty and service are linked. And one of the lessons of this story is that God in revealing and working out his sovereign purposes, uses servants. And in using human beings as his servants, it is intriguing to see who he selects for his service because he has a habit of selecting the most unlikely individuals. And here the chain of events that will eventually lead to Naaman being cured of his leprosy begins with the words of a young servant girl. We are not told her name. We don't know anything about her except that she had been taken captive by a raiding party from Syria. In the grand scheme of things, she is utterly insignificant. But she has the faith And she has the courage to speak up. And this theme of service is central to the life and ministry of Elisha. Back in chapter 3, when Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, asks, Is there no prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord through him? The reply comes, Elisha, Son of Shaphat is here. He used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. To pour water on the hands of someone was the task of a servant. And right from the beginning of Elisha's ministry, he is marked out as one who serves. And then as we look forward into the New Testament, When we see the revelation of God at its fullest and its most complete, how is the Lord Jesus described? He is described as a servant. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The most beautiful illustration of that comes in John 13, where the Lord kneels and washes his servants' feet. Has anyone put it better than Graham Kendrick? This is our God, the servant king. He calls us now to follow him, to bring our lives as a daily offering of worship, the servant king. As Christians, our calling is to serve him. That's what we're here for. The most fundamental part of that service is to tell others the good news about Jesus Christ. The easiest thing in the world is to say, I'm not very good at that sort of thing. 
to make excuses. Our attitude may well be that of Moses. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? But he obeyed, and the people were delivered from Egypt. Think of Gideon. How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. But he obeyed, and Israel was saved from the Midianites. This young girl could have said, well, I'm saying nothing. I owe these people nothing. They have taken me from my home. But she speaks up, and the grace of God is released. That brings us to the third theme. We have sovereignty. We have service. We have salvation. By this stage, the traditionalists among you will be rejoicing. A three-point sermon with alliteration. And in the theme of salvation, the themes of sovereignty and service come together. The name Elisha means God is salvation. The story of Naaman is more than just a story about a man being cured of a disease. It operates on another level. There is a spiritual dimension to it. The cleansing of Naaman is an illustration of how God works in salvation. The way that this salvation is worked out is instructive because Naaman labors under a number of misconceptions and none of his expectations are realized. He is wrong about the cost of his salvation. When he sets out for Samaria, He takes with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. Surely that will be enough to pay for a cure. But Elisha refuses to accept any of these gifts. Naaman's salvation to him is free. He is wrong about the source of salvation. He brings with him a letter from his king to the king of Israel. He thinks that this cure will operate on this important level. Yet it's through God's servant Elisha that the way of salvation is revealed. Naaman is also wrong about the means of his salvation. When he is directed to the door of Elisha, he has definite ideas about what should happen. I thought that he, Elisha, would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. And when he is told to bathe seven times in the Jordan, he is not impressed. If that is all it takes, why could I not just bathe in one of those nice, clean rivers in my homeland? And in all of these preconceptions, Naaman is displaying something deeply ingrained in human nature. We want God to bless us, but we want to tell God how to bless us. 
We want to deal with God on our terms. Naaman had to learn obedience to the word of the Lord, strange though that word might have seemed to him. He did obey, and he was healed of his leprosy. And what is Naaman's response? Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. From the lips of someone who in the later words of Paul would have been excluded from citizenship in Israel. A pagan, a Gentile. We are hearing what Israel should have been demonstrating to the nations around. What then of our three questions? Does this story confirm what we already know about God? Yes, it does. It confirms that God can and will keep his promises and his plans will be fulfilled, even though circumstances might lead us to doubt it. Does this story tell us something new about God? Yes, it does. It shows that God's grace, although displayed first to Israel, is not limited to Israel. It is universal. Does it point to something in the future? Yes, it does. It anticipates the gospel and the message of the cross. The story of Naaman is the story of every man, of every human being separated from a holy God by the disease of sin. And when Naaman did what Elisha told him to do, and he dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, we read that his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Naaman's cleansing is a picture of the new birth, the restoration available through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this Old Testament story brings before us the themes of sovereignty, of service, and of salvation. And at this stage in the mission of God, these themes are like seedlings, but they take root and they grow and they come into full bloom in Christ. And in the New Testament, reflecting on the wisdom of God, the Apostle Paul would write to the church at Corinth. And this is what he said in chapter 1, of 1 Corinthians. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things 
and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. You might almost think that when Paul wrote those words, he had in mind the young girl from Israel who served Naaman's wife. Our loving God and our Heavenly Father, we thank you for what we have sung and what we have heard this morning. We pray that your words would sink deep into our hearts, that they would impact our lives, help us to grow and to change and to mature. Father, we pray that you would be with us for the rest of today, for the service this evening and the services planned throughout the week. In your name, amen.